Welcome to Midrats with Sal from Commander Salamander and Eagle One from Eagle Speak at Sea or Shore, your home for a discussion of national security issues and all things maritime. And welcome aboard, everybody. Glad to have you here. Join us for another live edition of Midrats, unless you're getting the podcast and it's not live, but you know what I mean. But hey, if you're with that esteemed cohort live, I go ahead and like to invite you to scroll down to the bottom of the show page if you haven't already. That's where we'll have the chat room up and running uh, with uh, hopefully some of the usual suspects there. And that's a perfect place if during the course of the show you have some observations you want to share or if there's a question you would like for my co-host and I to direct to our guest during the course of the next hour, we will be monitoring the chat room and that would be the perfect place to do it. If you have to run off and, and take care of some stuff and you want to catch up on uh, part of the show you may have missed, or if you haven't already uh, and you want to catch up on some previous episodes of Midrats, go ahead and go over to iTunes, Spreaker, Spotify, whichever podcast aggregator you're looking for. Look up Midrats and go ahead and subscribe to the free podcast, and that way we'll be waiting for you at time that works best in your schedule. And let's get on with today's show. And my father was a salesman his whole life. And one thing he always tried to teach me, and of course, being a a Y chromosome guy, I didn't always listen to my father until uh, I was too late. But um, he always tried to teach me the importance of people in networks. And when I was in my mid-30s, I kind of realized that he really knew what he was talking about. And it doesn't just work on a personal basis. It works on a, a national basis where networks, local knowledge, understanding the human terrain, and even gossip, just like that's good for a, uh, a man who makes his living as a salesman. It's also good for nations and those uh, people and organizations who exist to help pursue the interest of the nation and the people they serve. And whether you're a tourist or a diplomat, all in one, you're going to see kind of the same challenges. And when you're building those relationships, both personally and nationally, and one of the things that is most important is trust. We're social animals, and whether you're looking at the United Nations or a middle school lunchroom, you have in-groups and you have out-groups, you have friendly people, you have hostile people, the aggressively neutral, and occasionally those that are just waiting to see which side will give them the most, and then they'll make their move. And you have to understand people and you have to understand motivations and why people are acting the way they are based upon a perceived potential gain, threat, or value another part you may have. They want to know about who has access to power, who has access to influence. If I need to get information to people who might be more important than the person I'm talking to, are they a reliable path to do that? And um, do they perceive to me to be equally useful to them? And in that process, when we look at how the United States work with other nations, for those who wear the uniform, occasionally you're going to hear and maybe work with our military attaches. And that's what we're going to spend the next hour on today, is we are going to look at how we use 
um, either positively or underutilize our defense attache system, who they are, what they do, what we would like them to do, and perhaps uh, answer a few questions for those that might have the opportunity to be one at some point down the road. And our guest for the full hour is Raymond N. Powell, Colonel, U.S. Air Force, retired, fellow at Stanford University, and he was the former air attache to Vietnam from 2013 to 2016, and the senior defense official defense attache to Australia from 2017 to 2020. And we're going to use his, his recent open letter that you can find on Defense One. We have the link on the show page titled, DOD's Diplomats Don't Need More Rank, Just Less Disdain. That'll be the starting point for our conversation. And Ray is just here as an individual speaking for himself, and his opinions do not necessarily represent any of those of organizations he may be affiliated with. Ray, welcome to Midrats. Well, thank you, Sal. It's great to be here. Well, we appreciate you taking time to join us uh, to talk about uh, what has definitely occupied the better part of a decade of your last of uh, of your life, the last decade of your life, I think, is what I was trying to say. Um, and kind of uh, to kick things off, uh, it, it caught my attention when I went over Defense One. I saw open letter. An open letter. It's it's uh, it's a great national tradition of people making points to get out there. And uh, we don't often see them in a military or diplomatic context, and especially in that, that Venn diagram overlap of military attaches, it uh, was a unique opportunity. And a lot of what you wrote uh, resonated with what I've heard from friends and acquaintances of mine that have had similar responsibilities or have worked with those who have responsibilities like you. And just, just for a listener, I wonder if you could outline for us um, what was the process that, that brought you to the point that said, you know what, I need to go ahead and get it, get this out here, and this would be the right format to put it in? Yeah, sure. So if you – I suppose the approximate was just reading the article that talked about the recent downgrade of five uh, defense attache positions by the secretary. And this was in response to a 2017 – uh, National Defense Authorization Act requirement to reduce the overall number of general officers by 110. And so, you know, in the in the calculus, uh, five of the defense attache uh, uh, positions were caught up in that. And rather than deal directly with that question, what I wanted to do was talk about the vast number of attache positions, the, the vast majority, which are not general officer held already. Uh, very few are actually held by general officers. And so um, those of us who uh, understand that our job is to be the uh, official representative of either our service or of the Secretary of Defense in the country uh, to the foreign nation that we are assigned to. And that is kind of a heady uh, responsibility. And when you walk into the country, you have a letter from the Secretary of Defense, if it's if a defense attache, introducing you to the minister or Secretary of Defense of the country you're going to and saying that this is my official representative. And what you find out is that as the waves of senior officials travel to the country and you, you know, bring them to their various meetings in the country, 
oftentimes you find that you yourself are locked out of the room, even as a, you know, four or five members of their own staffs will be in there with them. And obviously, if you're going to have credibility as being the official representative of the Secretary of Defense in the country, that's, that's kind of an intolerable situation. Because what it says to the host country is, this guy can flash around all the official letters he or she wants, but the reality is they're just not that important. And, um, and so you know, this, this sort of reality was, was, was with us all the time. And every attache has, as I put in my letter, a book of such stories. And for years, I worked on different ways to try to um, address the situation within the system. And ultimately, the big DOD system would find ways to sort of sideline those efforts. I was able to address it, I think, pretty successfully in Australia, where the ambassador signed out a letter essentially saying, you can, you know, dear, dear distinguished visitor, welcome to Australia. However, I need for my representative to be in the room when you are having your meetings, because otherwise you discredit the embassy, which is essentially discrediting the ambassador, telling them that we don't matter. What really matters is this person far away from Washington, D.C., and their staff members. So uh, that was actually very effective in rectifying the situation because we could just present that as soon as the, we got the news of the visit. And that, that fixed most of our problem, but it only fixed it for us in Australia. And so I just saw this, this, this article that came up about the downgrade as a great opportunity to try to put the information out there that really it is, this is something the secretary could help rectify in a huge way, in a very simple way, without uh, costing the taxpayer's defense. Well, let's, I think we need a little background to help our listeners a little bit. Talk about how one becomes an attache, uh, what, what the route is. Do you, do, you know, do, you, do you go from being a pilot to being an attache, or is it a different road? And what kind of training do you receive before you get out in the, in the, uh, in the field? So the, the route to get there varies by service. So each of the services has different, a different pathway to become an attache. Um, most have, have instituted a foreign area officer program of some sort, but even those are, are much different depending on the service. When I joined the attache corps, it was actually all, all the way back in 2011 that I applied, and honestly it was answering a, uh, a mass email blast saying that uh, the Air Force was looking for attaches and having been in my enlisted career a Vietnamese linguist, I decided to go ahead and throw my name in for Vietnam. And so I put in a, a package and it was accepted. But that would not suffice today because the Air Force uh, attache program or foreign area officer program has matured quite a bit in the intervening years. And now they're looking for a, a bit more a, an international uh, relations background uh, educational credentials, uh, other kinds of uh, career credentials, uh, possibly um, uh, language credentials. So th those those paths to get to become an attaché or a foreign area officer more more generally are are, are kind of varied. And I should also notice, uh, excuse me, make note of the fact that 
in the foreign area officer world, you're generally talking about two different uh, groups of people. One is the attache corps, which is the official representative, uh, the, uh, the representational corps, and the other is the security cooperation corps, which is focused, tends to be focused more on uh, foreign military sales and some, some grant programs, depending on what, which uh, country you're assigned to. So the, uh, getting into the attache corps uh, depends on your service. Once you're in, every attache goes through uh, joint military attache school, which takes place at DIA uh, Defense Intelligence Agency headquarters in Washington, D.C. And it's, it's you know, I, I'm exactly sure exactly the length these days, it's about three months long, I'd say. And it puts you through a very, very wide uh, training program because the kinds of situations that attaches find themselves in are actually extremely broad uh, because we are worldwide. Uh, for example, you know, I, I don't know that I ever made great use of the training that I got in how to attend a formal dinner um, because that felt very sort of Western-oriented. And maybe if I had been assigned to Paris, that would have been really important. But in Hanoi and Canberra, I think it was much less so. However, uh, what, what I did need quite a bit, for example, uh, in a, a place like uh, Hanoi was just a lot of security awareness, for example, uh, because as, as good as uh, partners that we are there, you know, there are lots of, there are still some security issues that we have to be aware of and very sensitized to, and we get lots of training in those areas. And I could go on and on about the various kinds of training that we get. But again, and I should also mention that uh, there is a spouse training program that goes along with the attache program uh, because when uh, when we travel as, uh, as attaches, it is very much a team sport. And having your, your spouse sensitized and aware of all the issues that come up is hugely important. Once you're on station and you get through that training and you're assigned to the embassy, um, who are those stakeholders inside the embassy that the attache works with and um, perhaps is most needed by? And then, you know, staying inside the U.S. lifelines but outside of the embassy, who are those other U.S. stakeholders or entities that lean on or should rely on and utilize their own station attache? Yeah, so the, the, an embassy uh, employs what they call in the trade, they call it a country team. And so the country team all answers to the ambassador, and, and a large portion of the country team is going to be Department of State, which run the various um, uh, enterprises within the embassy, the political or economic or public relations, so, you know, those kinds of things. And then the other agency heads will have representation on the country team. And so the defense attache will be there as the official representative of the defense enterprise uh, that answers to the ambassador. And your question is a good one because one of the, uh, one of the remarkable things about being a defense attache, for example, is that you have an awful lot of bosses. Your service will send you into country as the attache. So even as a defense attache, I was identified ultimately and, and assigned by the Air Force to fill that billet with the concurrence of a number of other entities that have 
uh, agency and equity in my performance. So the, a very large looming uh, entity that, that pays a lot of attention to attaches is uh, the Office of Secretary of Defense, their policy people. So we call them OSD policy. Uh, you get a lot of direction and you get a lot of questions from OSD policy as they're trying to formulate policy in Washington, D.C., and they're trying to figure out what's going on on the ground in the country you're in. Naturally, of course, you're going to get a lot of attention from the combatant command. So, uh, you know, the, the, the four-star combatant commander and their staff is going to be reaching out to you all the time, trying to get, you know, coordination on various activities that we're doing together with that country or other kinds of circumstances that are arising in the country. My, your immediate boss is going to be within the Defense Intelligence Agency, which, you know, may seem sound a little strange, but, you know, in the end, information, you know, intelligence is just information by another name. And so, you know, a, a large part of an attache's job is to gather information. And it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, super secret information. It's just information. So you're just making observations where you are and, and, and writing up reports and providing advice. And so DIA husbands that program along, and they're also the ones that give you your training. And then, of course, the ambassador is always an extremely important boss and is the one that's closest to you and the one that you see you know, pretty much every day. And if you displease the ambassador, that can be a, the end of your, your, your tour right there. So, you know, your, your, your bosses are, are legion in a lot of ways. Um, I would go back to, you know, just in terms of how that, that comes out when you're doing something as mundane as a performance report. My performance report crossed the Pacific Ocean several times before I was able to find it because it had to go to DIA and then to uh, Indo-Pacific Command and then back to DIA and then to another person in DIA and then back to me for my signature. So, you know, the, the multiple bosses is a real thing. I, I got the, I hate to say this, but when I first started looking at your at your piece in Defense One, I thought, you know, this is this a one of those cases where the defense attaché has been uh, handed some poo-poo platters and told to, to walk around the room with them during a cocktail meeting or something with from the people who show up from D.C. Uh, was was it ever quite that bad, or is it mostly just being uh, not given the respect to a person who is a uh, uh, should be the subject matter expert on the countries that they're in. Yeah, I, I think I would not put it in terms of respect. You know, I, I think most defense attaches, most attaches understand that, you know, we, we wear the rank on the shoulder that we wear. And, you know, when – and to be honest with you, I'm fairly um, sanguine about the tendency to sort of look past the agulette that, that identifies you as an attache and look at the rank and say, well, you know, when I'm racking and stacking, who should be in the room? Obviously, I'm going to pick all of the general officers and senior executive service and all those people first. And everybody that I know that my, my particular uh, senior official wants and works with all the time. I mean, a, your average staff member for a, a, a staff of a, of a senior official lives in a solar system in which that official is the sun and everything revolves around that official. And I get it. Right. So when I'm thinking, 
well, I've only got five chairs, and I've got from my four-star staff, I'm, I'm sorry, but that colonel is just going to have to wait outside the room. The, and, that, and I get it. I mean, I understand that it makes, it, it makes sense from that perspective. And so what we used to do sort of before we, we came up with the ambassador's letter was I would have these long conversations with the staff and say, please understand that if I go into that room, my, my counterpart, the, the Australian defense attache in Washington, D.C., is a two-star. So if they shut the door and the Australian defense attache is in the room and the American attache is outside holding the coats, that sends a message to the host country that they really shouldn't waste any time having conversations with the American attache because they're just not that important. And the other thing that happens, of course, is that the American attache then lacks the information of what took place in the room, and there is a responsibility on the American attache to be the local expert, to know what the state of play is. Because the next DV after that, and the one after that, and the one after that, are relying on that attache to have this head full of knowledge of this is all of this, this is, this is all that's going on in the relationship. And so I tended to put the, 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 the issue in terms of not respect, but rather access, influence, information. You know, in order to have credibility, you should, you should be seen to have access. You should be seen to have influence. And then that gives you the information you need to be able to give good advice and good information when the time is right. And that's one thing that it's, it's hard to explain unless you've been through it. I, I, kind of, I, I kind of nodded my head a few times. I was not a attache. But back when I wore a NATO hat, I had a, a certain bespoke area of expertise that uh, was in high demand and I would have to go to these things. And I'm just an 05, just your standard issue Navy commander. And um, after one little phone call that we get back to the front office, word came from our, our chief of staff and he's like, okay, when you, when you go next week, he pointed to uh, one of my, one of my NATO colleagues, like you need to take a colonel with you <laughs> just because where you're going just the Navy commander is not going to get the seat you need. And it's like, he hasn't gone anywhere for a while anyway, and you get along with him, so you travel with him. So I had to do that twice. Just had to bring one time a colonel, one time a brigadier with me just to be able to get the seat of the room. But the when I talk about, and I, we could probably spend an hour listing um, shore staff billet, general officers and flag officer position we would rather to lose than uh, some of these nations, because a lot of these nations and cultures that, that you come from, they're a lot more sensitive than even some of our NATO allies to rank and status and the social position it gives you. Uh, they're almost neo-feudal in that regard. And that initial list that came out, I believe the, um, the ones that they are being downgraded was the UK, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, and Kuwait. And they were going to downgrade the one from UAE, Saudi Arabia, and Iraq, but they kind of backed off on that. And they're going to keep keep those as uh, flag officers and general officers. But when I look at the ones that are remaining, Egypt, Turkey, Pakistan, Kuwait, United Kingdom, those aren't very ecumenical cultures, I guess, or, or class-neutral cultures. When we do downgrade that, to a uh, just a colonel position 
Uh, how much concern is there that some of the problems you outline in your article will manifest, themse- manifest themselves outside the embassy to our host nation and our ability to um, either access people are to be seen as a viable conduit for information coming back to the U.S.? Yeah, that's a really good question, and I appreciate it because if, if I got pushed back at all on my article, and I, I did get a lot of response, but mostly from within the foreign area officer community, of course. Um, if I got any pushback, that was, that was probably the most common, which was, hey, you, you seem to say that the rank doesn't matter, and that's a fair critique um, because I'm not saying that exactly. What I'm saying is ultimately what matters is that the attache is, is seen as being well-informed and influential, and rank does convey that at the most basic level, right? So um, deciding to downgrade those positions will have an impact on whether or not the people who hold those positions in the future are seen as being well-informed and influential. But interestingly, um, in many places, it's not so much the rank as how they are seen as being connected to the people they want to influence. So if I am representing my country on behalf of such and such an agency or such and such a senior official, the the people of the country I'm in are more or less going to talk to me based on whether they think I've got good information and, and am a good conduit back to that person. So it does, it will matter. I mean, it will have an effect that, that, so the, they, they, the, the British defense attache, when they stop being a one star and they start being an 06, that will have an effect on their ability, but what will have a, uh, to, to convey that, that, that perception what will have a greater uh, impact will be how that person is treated by our own side in the ongoing interactions that they see transpire after that. You know, one of the uh, one of the things you, I guess, in your bio is that you were an air attaché in Vietnam, but the uh, senior defense official, defense attaché in in Australia. Uh, how many? I mean, when you're, we've got, uh, are there multiple attachés, one representing each service or as many services have an interest in some embassies? And, and then are, does the senior attaché uh, somehow coordinate their activities or are they all reporting back to their own services? So the, the senior defense official defense attaché, or what we lovingly call SDODAT, uh, the SDODAT is the boss of all of the attachés and of the security cooperation enterprise on the other side. So the performance reports do all flow up to that one person. And that was actually something done a few years ago uh, in order to rectify a perception that the uh, attaché community and the security cooperation community were so disconnected that, that they were, you know, uncoordinated. So they brought it together, and now that SDO DAT person, which is, which is what I was in Australia, does sign off on everybody's you know, performance report as it comes up. Um, now, there's, there's a limit to how much authority or control that person has because, of course, 
like many people in the military, they don't pick their own team. They are assigned the people they are assigned, and the, the, the military services go through a process of proposing and then getting approved certain attaches to go work for the SDODAT in country. Uh, and the SDODAT is, you know, will, will take whoever they're, they're given. And if you're unhappy with the person who comes out for whatever reason, you can't just send them back because there's not going to be another one in the pipeline they can replace them with. Um, they're going to have to go find somebody else. They're going to have to go get that person approved. They're going to have to get them trained. They might have to go get language capability. It may be a year before another one shows up. Pretty much have who you have. The size of the attache office in any country varies wildly, depending on the the extent to which they're needed in the relationship. Um, and it, that's not even necessarily a, a direct testament to the health of the relationship, uh, because oftentimes you need, so for example, in Australia, there was a lot going on in Australia on the military front. They are a very, very close ally. We, we do so much with them, but most of it happens on its own. It's not, it doesn't need an attache to run around after it and make sure it all happens. It's, it, there's a structure and a history and, a, and staffs, and there are people working on these things all the time. And so the attaches don't have to handhold all these things. Whereas the attache office in Vietnam, for example, a much smaller defense relationship, obviously, a much smaller defense relationship, and yet everything that happened really required a lot of attention because we didn't have that muscle memory. We didn't have all of those structures built up to make those things happen. When I went through that uh, previous list that they were looking at downgrading, the obvious thing is, those were all, with the exception of Pakistan, which is kind of Indian Ocean specific, but they were, with the exception of the UK, majority Muslim nations, um, mostly involved with the issues we've had in the uh, Southwest Asia and the Middle East for the last three decades or so. Um, and you did your two tours, and as you just outlined, um, all, old ally and friend that we're very integrated with in a lot of ways in the defense realm, Australia. And our former adversary that we've been getting along with quite well recently, but is in kind of a different category, um, Vietnam. When you look at the last decade plus where people have talked about, you know, pick, pick your description, your you know, Pacific pivot, you know, readdressing, going west to the Indo-Pacific region. When you look at the the discussion of that effort and uh, some move that's been done on the military side of the house to refocus and rethink in that direction, have you seen a similar change in prioritizing uh, the assignment of our defense attaches and our foreign area officers in the Pacific? And how closely do y'all individually interact or is the structure by itself pretty atomized specific to that embassy in that country? So um, certainly there has been an increase in the number of attaches being assigned to uh, Indo-Pacific nations. I I saw it while I was there. Uh, I was only the second air attache in Vietnam, uh, they, they had gone for years with only an, a defense attache supplied by the Army and a Marine attache who also doubled as the naval attache. And 
you know, just sort of in a very few short years, they, they went from a very, that, that sort of two-person operation with staff support to, I believe, five attaches by the time I had left. And in Australia, there was also a growth involved. Uh, we got, we, right before I left, uh, we had just got approved a Coast Guard attache, which is a very important position uh, in an area of the world in which so many of the uh, security problems have to do with illegal and unregulated fishing, for example, um, and other kinds of things that maybe a gray hole is not as suited for. So absolutely, there I have seen a growth. It is very hard to pull a nation away from things that we've been doing for a long time, and events intervene, right? So, you know, just in the last year, of course, we've seen things change dramatically in Afghanistan and the Ukraine and things. And so these things lead to other things, and they makes it very to just sort of carry out a systematic rebalance or, re, you know, realignment. But there has certainly been the will and the, uh, the uh, priority put on moving more into the Indo-Pacific theater because as, you know, what they will call uh, the priority theater or oftentimes uh, China will be referred to as the pacing threat. So that has certainly been out there. As far as how we interact, um, I always put a high priority on trying to interact with, with the other uh, DAOs, defense attache offices in country, whether I, if I was working on a report, for example, and it had something to do with New Zealand or the Philippines or Japan or something to that effect, I would always try to send it to that attache office and say, you take a look at this and make sure that I'm not, you know, I'm not just talking to some guy in, in Australia about things that I know little about. And oftentimes they would put in just some, some just great uh, clarifying uh, re remarks that would really help more comprehensive and much more accurate. Because really that's what, I mean, in the end, you know, the attache wants to give the best possible advice to our senior leaders and our policymakers. We want to be able to paint the clearest possible picture. And so uh, having that kind of relationship is really important. And they would try to bring us, excuse me, they would try to bring us together as often as they could. Uh, to have, you know, to a, a conference at, uh, in Honolulu where we'd all sit down and compare notes and talk about what was going on. And those were very invaluable opportunities for us to kind of level set with all of other uh, attache offices as well as our, our, our head sheds in D.C. and Honolulu. How much the communication from your host country? Let's 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 just talk about Australia. But do they, if they were concerned about the situation in the Solomons, say, where things seem to have taken kind of a a detour from where we'd like them to be, do, does the Australian government like come to you, uh, the Australian uh, whoever you're talking to in Australia, do they come to you and say? Could you put a bee in somebody's ear in D.C. about about what we perceive as a as a uh, a wrong step in in the Solomons, or is that does that uh, not happen? So it happens to the extent to which, again, I think that they see us as being uh, people who are influential and informed, right? So uh, we'll have some relationships where we have a very good relationship where we will go to them and they will come to us and we will constantly share information and compare and say doing about this. And of course, with a place like Australia, it's a very, very open relationship. So, uh, you know, we will share a lot of notes. They 
you know, the, the way that we sort of encourage that is by communicating to them good quality information that we are able to get uh, from back at our own headquarters or, our, you know, back in the U.S. or, or just there in the embassy and then communicating that to them in, a, in an open way and then encouraging them to share what they know. Uh, because, again, in an alliance relationship, you want the, the channels to be as wide open as possible. And as much as we like to uh, think that happens all the time anyway, uh, we are actually terrible in the government bureaucracies that we work in at overclassifying things so that the people that we want to be able to see them can't see them. Uh, you know, we'll just sort of slap caveats on them that we don't really think, think about. We just sort of put it on there, and all of a sudden, you know, our, our closest allies can't see the information. So we, we become their advocates in many cases and say, hey, why are we, why are we caveat on there? You know, these guys definitely need this information. And the answer is usually no reason. You know, somebody just put it on there. <laughs> well, Ray, we have a, um, a caller on the line. This is Mike. Mike was um, an attache to Stockholm. Mike, you're on the line with Ray with your question. Yeah, hi. Thank you very much for allowing me the chance to uh, interject. And uh, Colonel Powell, I agree um, wholeheartedly with your observations. I was in Stockholm 20 years ago, and not a lot has changed. One of the observations that I have, and I'd like your thoughts, is to make the attache system to be effective. It doesn't need to be ranked, but the service chiefs need to recognize that, in my view, um, dollar for dollar or or you know, whatever metric you want to use, uh, the defense attache system is an excellent way. And to make it more viable and more potent so that rank is not the issue, each of the services could make, um, if you're a hot-running uh, combat officer, whether it be the Air Force, the Army, or the Navy, um, you want to make flags, you've got to be an attache. You've got to go into a country and become an expert at that country before you're going to be made a flag officer and potential, you know, combatant commander. Um, let's take China, for example. It's been 20 years. I knew China was going to be a problem. We've had six different defense attaches in there. How many of those defense attaches um, went in there as senior officers that did their tour and they're gone, whereas the service, if they had gone in and put a young, hot running colonel in there, um, to uh, gain the information, and then subsequently when he makes flags, he's that much more informed to uh, hear your thoughts on that. Well, Mike, as it happens, the, uh, the current defense attache in China was uh, the Army attache in Australia when I was there. And um, in his particular case, I will say that uh, he became a, a one-star he was he was recognized as being an outstanding uh, foreign area officer. Was pushed to you know to, to the, the the place to China with the, with the expectation he was going to have a very good shot at making one star, and he did. And so that's a at least at least one example of the system working well, uh, because I can tell you he's an extremely high qualified uh, officer, um, and in fact. Uh, but I will also say that, you know, there were points at which he sort of had to fight the Army uh, Human Resources establishment to, to keep from getting sent uh, to that would not have done that for him. 
but fortunately, he had the intervention of a particular four-star officer who said, no, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure that you stay on this path and, and get to the place you need to get to. So it, it was, uh, it wasn't, it was maybe didn't come naturally, uh, but at least there was that intervention. I will say that, you know, it is not the attache core across the services in general is not necessarily known and celebrated as a place where people get promoted. Um, a lot of people in the attache core are at their final rank or their next to final rank, and they kind of know that going in, uh, and they accept that as part of the deal. And, and you know, I don't feel sorry for them. Attaché work is fun and interesting and rewarding and exciting, and there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for it on its own merits. But I, I, I would recognize that, it, you know, it, it, to Mike's point, that it's not necessarily the place where all of the up-and-comers come to get promoted. Yeah, Mike, I, I appreciate your question. And uh, your answer, Ray, you know, kind of reminds me of one of, my, one of my pets for a very, very long time. Is, and I mentioned it after 2014, before the latest Russia-Ukrainian war, is we had a lot of people coming in and out of Ukraine. I, and it kind of drove me nuts because uh, I knew what the Navy was doing. And I asked a few questions about it in general. Why we were not sending our best Army Marine Corps captains and Navy lieutenants there for a year just to see what was going on um, and then reward that type of behavior. And this was, you know, something very, very similar. But you, the, the right people in the right location, and when you start rewarding that behavior, you get uh, more competition uh, to want to, to do this job. And it motivates those that are in it. It's just uh, a lost opportunity that I know you and and Mike and a lot of folks have seen because the right place, person at the right time can make a big difference. I think one of the more undertold story uh, in your fraternity, I don't know whether you know him or familiar with the background, but um, Major General Correa, who was the attache to UAE, he had a huge role and helping to change a lot of the relationships there on the Arabian Peninsula because you had one of your best people in a strong position who uh, made the right move at the right time, at the right rank uh, for the UAE, and that may have been why the UAE was kept where it was. Um, I, I, it's, it's a question that I guess until you start having um, – People get promoted and people don't, I know I did this with my last job, gladly go into dead-end positions because they really want to do the job. And I think of, um, in the naval parlance, one of the titans of the last you know, century and a quarter or so is Alfred Thayer Mahan. He came back to the U.S. after a, a tour in Paris, I believe. And what he learned uh, specifically about the... Uh, maritime industrial complex and Europe helped the U.S. after the um, Spanish-American War to really change our fleet uh, to the positive. And anyway, I don't know how, how we can solve that, but that definitely is uh, is part of the equation of, of people and uh, how they can make a difference. I mentioned uh, Major General Correa. Were there other circumstances where you saw uh, the defense attaches were really, uh, if not you know, batting above their their average per se, but were given an opportunity to to leverage that position the way you would want it to work? 
Yeah, you know, I, I think, well, first of all, I think that that happens all the time, honestly, and that is one of the things about the attache position is that you actually find yourself in some really unique spots where you can make a big difference just by communicating the nuance that see if you're on a staff back in Washington, D.C. or back at the COCOM. Um, I often would talk about it like a vending machine. You know, you've got a, this vending machine there, but you can't, the, you know, the, the, the glass in front is kind of opaque, and you can't quite see what's behind the glass. You can sort of see the shape of the, of the potato chips or the candy bar. But when you push the button, it might or might not bend, and, you know, maybe the different one will bend, and maybe the, the, the potato chips bag will just be mostly air. And what you want is you want the attache who's there who can actually guide you through the process of choosing which button will bend on the machine. And, you know, this sort of operates, you know, in, in uh, opposition to the view from D.C. where they are getting a lot of information and they are sort of organizing it in ways that the senior leaders, the policymakers will try to understand it. But you really need a gut check. You really need somebody to, to, to take a look at, at that and say, you know, that's, that, that looks good, that briefs well, but that actually doesn't work here. And um, yeah. so if I could use an example, uh, uh, everybody's favorite uh, topic these days in the South China Sea is freedom of navigation operations. <clears throat> and one, one thing that lots and lots of senior leaders would like our partners and allies to join us on our fawn ops, because how great would it be if the international community came together and we did those together as a, you know, as a, as a team, right? And that would really show that this really is international space. But oftentimes, when you, if you show up in a country and you say, we want you to do this with us, you don't know what you're asking, right? I mean, we've been doing bond ops for four decades all over the world. We have that credibility. You know, of course, we're also the United States of America, so we have the size. We have the size. We have the credibility where we can say this, we're not doing something new. The only new thing here is the island that used to be a, a reef and the airfield that you built on top of it. That's what's new. Whereas all of a sudden you ask somebody else to do it, they're doing it against a, say, a Chinese feature, that is new. And they, they're going to expect uh, Beijing to go crazy because that's new and they're not going to want them to do it. And so you're, 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 you're making this huge ask and you're just sort of walking into it blindly. And that's where you want to sit down and maybe talk to the attache and say, what kind of a response am I, am I going to get if I ask this question? And there's, that's just one example of, of uh, you know, a whole bunch of examples where the attache could maybe say, well, maybe that's not exactly the right question to ask here. Maybe what you could do to get them more on board is to get, you know, ask them to give more vocal support to our freedom of navigation operations, or maybe get them to do some, some multi-sales with us in not within 12 nautical miles of the feature, or, you know, pick something else off the menu out of the vending machine, something that will actually vend. Mark, you there? Yeah, I'm here. It's that ON OFS switch again. Um, <laughs> let me go back to let me go back to Mike's to Mike's question because I think it's it's an interesting one. Would it be beneficial to both the attaché corps and to the uh, people who are going to be future COCOMs or whatever we're going to have in the future uh, to have hard charging young young uh, 
officers identified as as uh, potential flag whatever uh, general officers would it be beneficial to have them somehow rotate through at least an attache sub attache tour of some kind so they get a flavor for what uh, what it's about if nothing else because once you become a a uh, a cocom you're dealing in in international relations out the yin yang and and uh, i just wonder if there would it would be in your mind uh something that would be beneficial to the service to to have them rotate through if not as attaches which may be perfect but uh as some kind of sub attache so they can get at least the, the flavor of it yeah absolutely and now Right now, we have programs like that. The, the services will have programs that will get young officers to have short rotations in an embassy, sort of under the tutelage of the attache office, and they'll, they'll get to spend a certain amount of time there. Uh, and again, each service does this a little bit differently, but I've, I've had times where I've had a, a, a person there, say, for a month or so. Uh, unfortunately, what happens with most of those people is that they are destined to be part of the foreign area officer program. So they're not coming in there just to get the flavor and then go back to the operational force. They're going as a predicate to do, you know, foreign area officer work uh, in the future. It's a great program. Uh, I always uh, enjoyed having those folks in the office. Uh, I would often try to give them, you know, interesting things to do that I thought would give them a good flavor for how the embassy works. Uh, but it would, it, it we don't use that currently in a way that informs in, in the way that you're talking about where that person would end up on staff somewhere. You mentioned, um, we discussed earlier the interaction, different locations. And I guess if you wanted to do in big pixel, you have friends and allies, one group of nations, potential adversaries, a different group of nations. And you have all, a whole spectrum in the middle of acquaintances, quasi-friends, potential adversaries, people who are weighing which direction they want to go to. And we have military attaches kind of sprinkled all in there. How does your interaction with, with host country change in those different environments? And do you work with different people outside of the embassy in those different types of nations that we work with? Well, a good attache is going to spend a lot of time expanding the size of their network because the, the last thing you want to do is get caught in the bubble that surrounds the embassy or the diplomatic community. And it's, it's very easy to do if you're not careful. And if you, if you succumb to that temptation, then what you've done is deprive your own senior leadership of the best information. So I, I spent time uh, academia in the, in, in the countries I was in. I spent time uh, trying to get out to various places around the country to see things from perspectives. I, I spent time um, to uh, other embassy uh, functions. There, now, let me say about that. There is the wine and cocktail circuit, right? And that is that sounds very uh, very appealing, but if you're an introvert like myself, that's actually the worst part of being at a shake. You know, you, you you always try to find some good extrovert to go to those things on your behalf. Because that's that's the that's the representational part that says, okay, somebody needs to go to this country's national day 
uh, reception and drink wine and talk to all of the usual people who are all on all of these things. And uh, you can actually get good work done at those things, but it requires you to be very engaged and very involved and talk to a lot of people. Uh, but I, I was never very good at that part. Um, but, yes, yeah, so the, yeah, the, the best attaches are ones who spend time figuring out how to expand their networks into places that give them a complete picture of the situation in country. We'll talk expand on that a little bit. I mean, when when you're when you're in the country and and it's kind of your information gathering, as you said earlier, and you are part of the DIA, sort of, because the Department of Attaché, whatever it is, DAS reports to the DIA. Uh, you know, how much suspicion is there of of your activities? Are you know, are you closely watched? Does that depend on the country you're in, or is it uh, uh, what exactly happens while you're gathering this this information? Well, I, certainly that depends on the country you're in. I mean, uh, in, in certain countries, if, if you are – honestly, if you're in the embassy in Moscow, even if you're the agricultural attaché, you're closely watched. Um, so – but I would say, you know, for the most part, you have relatives. Um, you're not – you know, your job is, is, is to observe, right? And so uh, the defense attaché services, you know, we're, we're not covert operators. We're there to, to make sound observations about what we see in the country and, so, and, and, and give the very best advice. So in some places, that will earn a little extra attention. But oftentimes, that's just sort of, you know, old bureaucracies doing what they do. I, one of my uh, favorite examples is I was on a Pacific Angel humanitarian uh, event in a uh, province in Vietnam that didn't see very many Americans. And we showed up, you know, 100 strong to do um, medical outreach and engineering on some schools and clinics and found ourselves being extraordinarily closely watched by the local public security folks. And the, the, the first time I noticed them really was we, we were trying to go to dinner uh, after a meeting. And uh, one of the people there uh, who was a Fulbright scholar at the local university said, well, let me call the professor. He knows all the good places. And so she called the professor, and he showed up on his motorbike, and we're talking to him. And I turned around, and the professor's gone. So I looked over, and I saw the plainclothes public security guys that somehow materialized out of the work, woodwork, and were interrogating the professor at the, off to the side. So I thought, good grief. My, uh, my, my translator, and I, I walked over, and I said, maybe we should have a conversation. And for the next 45 uh, minutes, we had this conversation that went around and around. Where were you going? We were going to dinner. Would it eat dinner in the hotel? No, our plan. This was not on the schedule. We will eat dinner around and around and around. And this is just you know these old uh, these old organizations that are used to treating us as you know uh, colonizers and, and and enemies who haven't really caught up to the fact that we're in a relationship now. You know, so it's sort of the the combination on one hand is, you know, it's, a, it's still a communist party-led country. And on the other hand, you're in a part of the country that's sort of like, you know, y'all ain't from around here. So, uh, you know, that put all that together and you ended up being a lot more closely watched than maybe you wanted to be. But for the most part, no, we were, we were I mean, pretty much everywhere I went, we, have, we had great freedom and I didn't feel like I had people staring over my shoulder. 
usually when you got a, a four-star traveling around the, the world meeting with people, we're, we're talking about one of the COCOMs. And as anybody who's done a, a tour at a co- on a COCOM staff knows, it's a huge staff. And it has a little bit of, uh, in a, depending on the personality, they can develop a almost Romanesque pro-consul view of their particular area. And when you're working with COCOMs and they, and they come in country, uh, how does that relationship work with who is the U.S. military's resident expert by both job description and uh, time on station usually. And um, who does an attache usually interface with, with the COCOMs coming to visit? And it, are there ways you think uh, we could improve uh, the relationship or at least the communications path uh, between COCOMs and the nation's attaches when they do their little round the COCOM tours? So the, the, the senior defense official defense attache, the SEO DAT, will generally to go, as actually a requirement uh, going into country, they will need to go and visit the COCOM. And I have found for the most part that the four stars themselves, COCOM commanders, will receive them and talk to them and reserve time for them. Uh, and generally, say they understand a person in their lives and they should pay attention to what they say and they should try to integrate them to the extent possible. And, but there will be people, as you mentioned, they have very, very large staffs. And the job of a staff, as I said, you know, that's the sun in your universe, tends to be to try to make that person's life as perfect as possible. And you don't even have to be a naturally imperious person to maybe overread that mandate and try to keep everything, everybody away from the sun in your universe. Uh, and the comet that comes through, which is the, uh, the, the defense attache, will, will just be one more thing to kind of keep away. And so it does tend to, to depend oftentimes on the personality of the, the person at that rank, but it also will depend on oftentimes the personality of the people on staff. And I, I found that oftentimes I was able to communicate with those staffers and convince them that, hey, we should have a long, longer discussion about this and we really should bring the COCOM commander into the discussion. But that's, that's hard to do because if you've ever been to a COCOM staff, you'll note that there are gatekeepers upon gatekeepers upon gatekeepers. Even for the staff themselves, it can be hard to get in to see that commander. That, you know, and that, that is one of the things that um, makes it the most difficult is, you know, I, there were times when I would write directly to a COCOM commander. In fact, one of the things I appreciated about um, uh, Admiral uh, Aquilino, excuse me, Admiral uh, Davidson when he was the uh, Indo-PACOM commander was he instituted a new program in which before he visited a country, he had the defense attache write their own two-page scene setter for him so that he would have that in his book before he came in. And at first I, I, I was upset about that because I didn't want, I didn't need more work. But then I realized he is inviting me to have two pages in which to give him the straight skinny as I saw it as directly as possible, and nobody between myself and him was going to be able to change it. And I thought, wow, this is a tremendous gift he's given me. And I found that when I did so, he actually had read the entire thing from 
from top to bottom. And uh, when he had his interactions, he I could tell that he had read it because he had he had clearly informed himself from the things that I had written. So I think you know oftentimes you have to take advantage of those little opportunities when you get them. Well, that's that's brilliant and. Uh... Ray, I, I'm afraid we've eaten up our, our hour with you. You've been most kind to join us today. Uh, do we have other something else you're going to come out with, another open letter to someone, or something else you're working on that you would like to tell our audience about in the future? Uh, you know, I, my, most of my work these days, I'm working on South China Sea issues. I'm here at uh, Stanford with a new center that's called the Gordian Knot Center for National Security Innovation. And so as part of that, I've, I've put out a couple of things recently uh, on South China Sea issues, and I imagine there will probably be more of that coming out. The way that I tend to write, I tend to sort of get the fire in my belly and, and burp it all out in about two hours. Uh, so uh, you never know when that's going to happen, but uh, certainly if it does, I'll let you know. The creative burp. Huh? <laughs> that's one way to describe <laughs> it. Well, well, Ray, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you for the last hour. Uh, we got some good stuff here. And good to know that you're over there in Stanford making your noodle work. And uh, I love the Gordian Knot as a name uh, for a group of people trying to figure things out. That That's pretty good. So gold star happy face for that individual. And uh, anyway, really appreciate your time, Ray, and looking forward to an opportunity to talk to you again in the future at some point. All right, gentlemen, thanks so much for having me on. And thanks for being with us. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for another edition of MidRat. Until next time, I hope you have a great Navy and Air Force Day. Cheers.